All right. Thank you, Colby. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 2. Book of 1 Peter chapter 2. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, you should find it on page 1295. 1 Peter chapter 2. I want to tell you guys about something that happened uh, this past week, uh, Tuesday morning. Nixon helped me take our cat, OJ, to the vet, and uh, we walked into the waiting room. There was an older lady there sitting there uh, holding a, a little tiny kitten. She was waiting to go back, and so we go in. I'm talking to the receptionist, telling her why we're there. Um, she's getting everything typed in, and, and while I'm doing that, Nixon decides to strike up a conversation with this, this lady who is sitting there with her, her cat. And so they do a little bit of small talk, you know, how are you, what's your name, that kind of thing. And then once they get past all the small talk, he, he asked her a question that I'm, I'm sure she was not expecting. I sure, certainly was not expecting him to ask her this. Uh, and you'll have to pardon my language, I'm just quoting a five-year-old, okay? This is the question he asked her. Does your cat have the poops? <laughs> and uh, of course, he was completely sincere. Um, but she immediately broke into laughter. Then she said, as a matter of fact, he does have the poops. To which Nixon responded, that's, uh, that's what's wrong with our cat too. He has the poops. So everybody's cats had the poops on Tuesday morning. So we all had a good laugh. And uh, I feel very confident that, that that made her day. But I've been thinking about that interaction all week. You know, it's just, it was so funny, but it was also so kind in a very five-year-old kind of way. Um, and, you know, you often hear parents say, you know, that we're supposed to be the ones teaching our kids, and yet so often we learn something from them as well. And don't get me wrong, I'm under no illusions about the sinfulness of my children. They are depraved monsters. But uh, uh, I asked Rebecca specifically if it was okay for me to say that, and she said yes. So, um, But there was something so pure about that act of, of kindness um, I was thinking back to it, and I thought, you know, I remember after the fact that when we were walking in, I could feel that Nixon felt really nervous. You know, he kind of got close to me and sort of grabbed my hand a little bit tighter, and what's going to happen when we get in there and that sort of thing. And so I'm, I'm thinking that in his little five-year-old mind, he was thinking, this makes me really anxious. I bet it makes her anxious, too. And so what if I try to tell her, because he actually said to her after she told him, yes, my cat has the poops, and we established that our, our cats were all there for the same reason. He told her, I know that the vet is going to take good care of your, of your kitty, and everything's going to be okay. And so I was reminded in that moment of how refreshing just a simple act of empathy can be. Sometimes God gives us examples in places we would not expect um, it's not always the educated, the experienced, or the ones in high places. It's often those who are deemed to be the lowest, who have the most to teach us. And that is what we're going to hear Peter tell us in his own way here in 1 Peter 2. And so let's read together and listen to what he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We're in 1 Peter 2. We're going to begin in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. 
For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in His steps. We'll pause there and let's pray together. Lord, we are... uh, thankful for your word. Uh, We're thankful that you have spoken to us. And uh, God, I pray today that you would help us to not stumble over your word today, but that we would come to it with open hearts and open minds and be ready to receive what you would have to say to us today right where we are. Spirit of God, that you would move and Uh, impress these words upon our hearts. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, now as I I prayed, I I pray that the Lord would help us not to stumble over His Word. And and there is a pretty big stumbling block here uh, in verse 18 where Peter says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. And when we read a passage like that, there's a couple of, of ways that we could stumble. On the one hand, we could hear Peter tell slaves to be subject to masters and think that he is legitimizing the institution of slavery. And we could either let that lead us to say, okay, well, slavery must be totally fine, or, wow, Peter's so out of touch that, you know, why should we listen to anything that's in the Bible if if this could be so wrong? That's one stumbling block. That's one way we could mistake what's, what's happening here. The other stumbling block that we could have, though, is we could say, okay, obviously, you know, Peter was addressing a situation in which we no longer live. And so these are, these are instructions that were important, but they're outdated, and I don't really see how they apply to us. I suspect that we're more likely to make that second mistake, to stumble in that second way, to say, you know, um, I'm sure that this was fine, um, but, you know, we don't have servants today. We don't have slaves, so this doesn't really apply to us. Or, or maybe we say, you know, this applies to a workplace, you know, employers and employees or something like that. If we do that, if we sort of gloss over it in that way, we're going to miss something really, really important. And so I do want us to address the fact that Peter speaks to slaves or servants and tells them to be subject to their masters. I want us to try to make sense of that. But I also don't want us to miss the, the bigger point, the point that's underneath that. So, so notice something with me. I want to just make a quick, broad observation. Verse 18, Peter addresses slaves directly. He says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Then... So that's what he does in verse 18. He speaks directly to them. Then he immediately begins to expand that instruction to include anyone in the church. Look at verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Is it it a gracious thing only when a servant endures sorrows while suffering unjustly or when anyone does, right? Anyone. Verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, 
because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. So here's a, what I think is a helpful exercise. Let's ask a rhetorical question specifically of verse 21. When Peter says in verse 21 that Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, was he speaking only to servants? Was he saying that Christ only died in the place of people who were enslaved? The answer is, of course not, right? Christ suffered in the place of all of his people. That includes Christian slaves, but they're not the only ones. Now, back up to the beginning of verse 21. What about when Peter says at the beginning of verse 21, to this you have been called, namely to endure suffering while doing good. Do you think Peter was saying that only servants have been called to endure suffering while doing good? No. And he's going to make it clear later on in the letter that he, he means everybody. So every follower of Christ, no matter their status in society, is called to this, to endure suffering while doing good. This is the example that Jesus set, not just for slaves, but for every single one of His followers, the whole church. But Peter does specifically address slaves. And as I was wrestling with this passage, the question that I kept asking myself was, why does he do that? Why doesn't he just say, masters, free your slaves? If I'm being honest with you, I kind of wish he had just said that, but he didn't. The Holy Spirit did not lead him to say that. And so then I have to say, okay, well, why? Why did the Holy Spirit not lead him to say that? And why did the Holy Spirit lead him to say this? Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. And so I, I, I banged my head against this rock and dug and dug, and I slowly began to realize, okay, there is a real purpose behind this. Because slaves were deemed to be at the bottom of society. They were the lowest of the low. They were the kind of people who had nowhere to appeal except to God alone. And the Bible is consistently concerned with these kind of people. who They have, they have no way to, to address their concerns with anyone because no one's going to listen to them. They have nowhere to appeal except God alone. Orphans, widows foreigners, oppressed, slaves, these are the ones. And the point is, these are the people who are at the bottom of society. And, and it turns out that they are the ones who have something to teach the church about what it means to depend on Him. What it means to not be able to go anywhere else but to Him, especially in the face of undeserved hardship. So again, we may not have literal slaves in our midst, praise God. But there are still people who, for whatever reason, have endured undeserved hardship. They have suffered for righteousness' sake. And Peter's point is, if you want an example of Christ-likeness, these are the people to whom you need to look. So here's how I want to summarize the big idea of these verses. It is that we have much to learn from the poor in spirit. We have much to learn from those who are poor in spirit. I'm borrowing that phrase, poor in spirit, from what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. He begins the Sermon on the Mount by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, 
It's important that we define then what that means to be poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit is to be aware of how desperately you need the Lord. Of course, we all need Him. We all depend on Him for life and breath and everything. But the poor in spirit are those who choose to acknowledge that dependence. While others deny their neediness, it is those who are poor in spirit, those who confess their dependence on the Lord. Jesus says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Peter's point here is that the whole church can and must learn from those who are poor in spirit. That's why he begins with slaves, because they represent those who are poor in spirit. They can teach us what it means to live in dependence on the Lord, not on the pleasantness of our circumstances. So <clears throat> without losing sight of that big idea, we do need to deal with the fact that Peter addresses slaves in particular. As I said, I don't want that to be a stumbling block for us, nor something that we just kind of dismiss as irrelevant. So what I want to do is I want to walk you through three observations that helped me make sense of this command, and it also helped me arrive at the bigger point underneath it, that, that big idea that we have much to learn from the poor in spirit. So three observations that I, I want to point us toward. First is that Peter affirms the humanity of slaves, not the institution of slavery. Peter affirms the humanity of slaves, not the institution of slavery. Um, slavery was very common in the Roman Empire. Some estimates say that a third of the Roman Empire was made up of slaves. Now, if we were to compare slavery back then with slavery in America and in the West, we're not exactly comparing apples to apples, okay? Because among other things, Roman slavery was not based on race. Um, first century slaves were often well-educated, sometimes even more than their masters. It wasn't un uncommon to find doctors and lawyers that were slaves. But make no mistake, uh, the institution of slavery itself was still blasphemous. There is something inherently blasphemous about thinking that you can purchase or own someone who is created in the image of God. And so elsewhere in the New Testament, there are a few things that are, are said that are, I think are really helpful for us to point out in this context. First, elsewhere in the New Testament, masters are instructed to pay their slaves a, a decent wage and to treat them with justice and fairness. Things like forceful enslaving, where you, you go and you force someone into slavery, that is explicitly condemned in the New Testament. Slave trafficking, where you sell or purchase a slave, those kinds of things are explicitly condemned in the New Testament. And in the book of Philemon, we do have this one book in the New Testament that is addressed specifically to a slaveholder, a man named Philemon. And Paul writes to him about one of his slaves, a man named Onesimus. And what does Paul tell Philemon to do with regards to Onesimus? What he says to him is, he says, I, I'm not commanding you to do anything. I, I don't want to use my authority as an apostle, which I could, but I don't want to sort of twist your arm into doing anything. But here's what I would want you to do. 
I would like for you to receive him, not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. And I want you, in fact, to receive him as as you would receive me. Philemon, imagine if, if I, Paul, were coming to you. I want you to do to Onesimus whatever you would do to me. So if you would take Paul and, and put him in shackles and, and put him back where he was, then all right. But that's clearly not what Paul means, right? It's, it's clear that he's implying that Philemon should emancipate Onesimus. And it's clear that the gospel should transform the relationship between a master and slave to where you do not own this person. You cannot sell them. You cannot force them to do anything. You should pay them a wage and you should treat them with justice and fairness. And so it's not surprising that in the first few centuries where the gospel advanced, the institution of slavery withered away. But that process took time. That process of slavery fading away took time. And the fact of the matter is there were some non-Christian slaveholders and some Christian slaveholders, and there were Christian slaves who needed to know, okay, I can sit here and pray all day that one day slavery will be eradicated and all those kind of things, but today I need to know how do I live as a slave, as a servant to my master in a way that's going to honor Jesus. I pray for that. I hope that will happen one day, but I need to know right now today how I can live to honor Jesus. And so that's why you have these instructions in letters like 1 Peter. So there's an acknowledgement of that reality without affirming it. But why do I say that, that Peter affirms their humanity? Here's why. It goes back to the, the thing that I initially thought was a problem when I read this. And that was, why doesn't he just talk to the masters? The more you think about it, you realize, okay, the fact that he does speak directly to the servants is itself subversive. Because what he does not do is he doesn't say, Masters, dominate your servants. Subject them to yourself as if they were objects or animals that can be broken into submission. By speaking to the servants and and addressing them directly, he's implying not only to them but also to everyone else in the church, including perhaps their owners, their masters. These are people who are capable of making decisions. They have a say in what they do or don't do. Peter is dignifying them by addressing them as image bearers of God who are capable of hearing and responding and making choices. So he affirms the humanity of slaves, not the institution of slavery. The second observation that I want us to make is that Peter affirms the need for justice. And by the way, as we, as we go through these observations, again, I don't want us to think, okay, well, here's, here Matt's in the part of the sermon that's, that doesn't really apply to us. Insert in the place of slaves whoever it is that, that our society deems to be at the bottom. Uh, Peter is affirming the humanity of those people. And next, he affirms the need for justice to those people. So... According to the norms of Roman culture, it was impossible to mistreat a slave. Aristotle said that it was literally impossible for a master to do injustice to a slave. Think about that. There was literally nothing that a master could do. No amount of abuse. Not even 
taking the life of a slave that anyone would bat an eye at and say, wow, he should not have done that. That's how dehumanized slaves were. That's how lowly they were regarded. Now with that in mind, look again at what Peter says in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, let's do another little mental exercise and ask ourselves a question. Put yourself in the place of a Christian slaveholder in one of these cities where Peter's letter is being circulated. Letters like this would have been read aloud to the whole church. So somebody gets up and they say, Okay, we got this letter from Peter. I'm going to read it to you. And they start reading it and they get to this verse. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. What would that do to you in your heart if you are a Christian slaveholder who's listening to that? What it's doing is it is subjecting not only the servants to, uh, to critique or to the authority of God's Word, but it's also placing slaveholders, masters under the authority of God's Word and saying you are also responsible for what you do and, and how you act toward them. What, so the question it forces is, what kind of master am I? Am I good and gentle or am I unjust? Am I treating those under my authority the way I should? So Peter's putting responsibility not only on those under authority, but also on those who have the authority. Now, again, I keep saying this, we don't have slaves in our context, but there are some who, who have authority over others, whether it's children in your home, students in your classroom, employees in your workplace. The point is, it is not only the responsibility of those under authority to submit, it's also the responsibility of those who have authority to use it for goodness and justice. And when you take a step back and think more broadly, you realize, okay, we live in a society that is way different than the one in, in which Peter was writing. In this context, these Christians lived under the rule of an emperor. If they, had, if they had decided, well, we don't think slavery should be legal anymore, there's not a whole lot they can do about it. But if, if we look at something in our society and see, you know what, there's an injustice being done here. There is something we can do about it. We can speak and advocate in ways that they could not. We have much more say about the quality of our society than they did. And so what we don't need to do is say, okay, well, you know, we have a lot to learn from those who are poor in spirit, right? So let's learn from them, but let, let that be the end of it. No, we can learn from them while also saying they should be treated justly. They are people who are made in God's image and we should strive to see that, just as we're going to strive to learn from them, that they uh, are treated justly as well. And then the third observation that I want us to make is that Peter affirms slaves as examples for all believers. He affirms slaves as examples for all believers. And so again, in our context, that means that those who are deemed to be at the bottom of society can be and often are examples for the whole church. So the same thing that Peter says to slaves in verse 18 about 
uh, about enduring suffering while doing good, he's going to say later in this letter to the whole church, to all believers. In fact, if you just glance back a few verses, he's just finished saying back in verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. He says that to the whole church. Everyone is under someone else's authority. Then he says in verses 19 and 21, as we've seen, that the whole church is called to follow Jesus' example by enduring undeserved hardship. This is what we have all been called to. And it's a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. So this is how I arrived at that, at that big idea, that we have much to learn from the poor in spirit. Peter points to those who are deemed to be at the bottom of society, and he effectively says, these are the ones who are following Christ's example, so they are examples for all believers. So let's, let's try to get specific and apply this to, to our situation. A way we could start to get at that is by asking the question, who does our society deem to be at the bottom? Not, not who is, who's really you know, the worst, but who does our society deem to be at the bottom? Who are the ones who are most often looked down upon or most likely to be overlooked? Uh, maybe it's the, the poor, the uneducated, the disabled, the immigrant, the minority, the widow, the orphan, the former drug addict. We could come up with a long list, right? Understand, it's not that those groups of people are necessarily poor in spirit. Someone could be incredibly wealthy and successful and still be poor in spirit. They could still be aware of and confess their dependence on the Lord. On the other hand, someone could be down and out, yet not be poor in spirit. So it's not, it's not about your status in society and that the people who are low are automatically favored by God or anything like that. It's about your heart. The problem is that the American church has developed over a long time this bad habit of looking primarily to those who are not poor in spirit. We are drawn to people who project strength. We're drawn to people who project expertise and power and influence, not to those who admit their weakness. We're naturally drawn to the wealthy, to the well-spoken, to the charismatic, the influential, not to the poor, the weak, and the overlooked. And yet over and over and over in God's Word, He says, those are the ones to whom I look. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So here's the thing. If we're not poor in spirit, and if we ignore those who are poor in spirit, then our values are not aligned with God's. Because he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he says, I choose those who are low and despised and weak because I don't want anybody to boast in my presence. I've come to see that whatever hardships God allows in my life, he does because he loves me and because he wants to remind me that I am poor in spirit. It's easy to forget that. Just because you're poor in spirit today doesn't mean you will be tomorrow or next week. Just because you were poor in spirit last month doesn't mean you are today. Hardships can be God's reminders to sort of knock the legs out from under us and remind us no boasting in the presence of God. But if we're not careful, hardships can do the opposite. They can harden us toward others. They can, they can make us cynical. Augustine used to use this phrase that I think about a lot. He says that the human heart, because of sin, it's naturally curved in on itself. In curvatus in se. It's curved in on itself, meaning that we, we have a hard time looking around and thinking of others. We have a hard time being empathetic to others. We have a hard time thinking that anybody has it as hard as I do. And so we have to pursue empathy. We have to be mindful of those around us, like Nixon in that vet's office. We have to ask God how he might be using these experiences to show kindness and mercy to us that we may then be able to show others. He is, in fact, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Whatever affliction God allows into your life, and it's, it's varied, it's different for different people, God allows that so that He can be to you the God of all comfort and so that you may then be able to comfort those who are in the same kind of affliction with the comfort with which you have been comforted by Him. Whatever hardship, it's not just about you. It's about the Lord, what He's doing, and it's about how He wants to show mercy to you and to those around you. Above all, we have to keep fixing our eyes on Jesus. I was reminded as I was thinking over this passage today, He is the one who was the son of a poor carpenter. That when He was born, His parents couldn't even afford the, the fancy sacrifice when they took Him to the temple. They could only afford you know, a couple of turtle doves and a pigeon. 
He's the one who said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. He's the one who suffered the death of a criminal and a slave. Crucifixion was reserved for the lowest of the low. He's the one who, even when he was buried, was, borrowed, was laid in a borrowed tomb. Yet he's also the one whom the Lord vindicated. He's the one exalted to God's right hand. He's the one who will return to judge the living and the dead. And he is the one who will make all things new. So a, a few questions to ask ourselves as we, as we come to a time of response today. Number one, am I poor in spirit? Not am I poor, not am I at the bottom of society or anything like that. doesn't matter. Circumstances, the point is the circumstances are not key. The key is, am I poor in spirit? Wherever you find yourself, however you find yourself, am I poor in spirit? Do I acknowledge and confess my dependence upon the Lord for everything? Question number two, have I allowed my heart to curve in on itself? Have I allowed my focus to become so fixated on what's right in front of me and what I'm dealing with that I have neglected those around me and how I can love them and show empathy to them and also what I can learn from them? And third, am I looking to Jesus? Do I have my eyes not only directed at those around me, but do I have my eyes fixed on Him, the author and perfecter of my faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising its shame? We're going to sing a hymn of response here in just a moment. I'm aware that there are some who are here in this room with me. There are some in the fellowship hall. There are some who uh, right now are going to hear my voice on, a, on Facebook or YouTube or on a CD or something like that. So... Wherever, uh, wherever you are right now, uh, you're not so far away. Wherever you are, literally or figuratively, you're not so far away that God's hand can't reach you, uh, that His Spirit can't work in you. And so I'm praying that that's precisely what the Lord will do. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for Your Word and how You... Challenge us, Lord. Um, I, Lord, I'll confess that I, I feel like you have um, afflicted me with this passage this week in a, in a, in a loving way. Um, and so, Lord, I pray that, that those who are listening to my voice right now, wherever they are, um, would, would be convicted uh, not by anything that I've said, but, but by your Spirit. Um, and Lord, that you would work in our hearts, Lord, to help us examine ourselves, to see whether we are poor in spirit, whether we're relying on you or whether we're depending on our own strength. Lord, that you would help us to examine whether we've allowed our hearts to curve in on themselves to the neglect of those around us, both how we can love them and learn from them. And Lord, that you would help us to examine whether we have had our eyes on you or whether we've just been looking at what's around us, at our circumstances. And God, help us to see the mercy that you are showing us 
Help us to see the comfort that you have to offer to us and help us to be conduits of your mercy and your comfort to others. And Lord, right now, if there's, if there's anyone who's hearing my voice, no matter where they are, if it's here in this room or if it's somewhere else right now, Lord, if there's someone who, who is not right with you, God, that you would move in their hearts, draw them to you by your Spirit, and God, that they would not depend on themselves, but that they would lean on the everlasting arms of Jesus. And Lord, now as we're about to sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. I pray that you would help us to heed that invitation today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.